This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast, episode five. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, board certified OBGYN, author, educator, and now podcaster. And I'm having a blast chatting with you all in this new and fabulous format. This week's episode is going to be awesome. And it's because I'm answering two questions about STIs, which you previously may have heard called STDs. LOL, NBD, FYI, it's going to be awesome. And that's actually one of the questions. Why did this change? But what I'm also really excited about, in addition to these two fantastic questions that I'm answering are, I have got one awesome historical lesson about STIs that you're just going to love in our classes and session segment. And then I've also got two segments of literally, literally, where I share two things with you that make me go, OMG, all with the abbreviations. So let's jump right in. Okay, so our first question is from Ingrid. So let's have a listen. Hi, uh, my name is Ingrid, and I have just always had this burning question of why do people now refer to them as STIs instead of STDs? I don't understand the difference, and I would like to know. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Ingrid, I love that this is your burning question. And I love that you called me so we could answer it. I'm thrilled to answer it. And I want you to know, I hear this one a lot. So you're far from alone. So let's first say STI and STD. What's in a name, right? So Shakespeare, back in the day, wrote in Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, I'm not Shakespeare, but I do have to say that I kind of do disagree with him there because I do think that language matters here. And I don't know, if you called a rose broccoli, would it still smell just as sweet? I mean, when it comes to marketing, things that we call does affect how we feel about something. I, I have gone off the rails and like off the off the whole, you know, train of thought there. But I do think that really this does matter. And I think it's important that we use better language when it comes to naming things, especially in the medical field, because so much what we say or what we call something can really give patients and give people a real sense of shame. There's some really terrible terminology out there in the medical field, especially in the field of OBGYN. And I think this is an example of one that I'm glad we've changed things up. So first, let's talk about what STI stands for. It's sexually transmitted infection. And STD stands for sexually transmitted disease. You might think, Dr. Jen, what's the difference? It's one letter, infection, disease. It's all the same thing. And actually, it's not. So until recently, we really used STD. That's the term I think most of us have heard and are familiar with. And again, STD stands for sexually transmitted disease. And we use that as the overarching name for things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, HIV, herpes, HPV, all the things that are spread via sexual contact. But more recently, we've changed up that language, and it's for two particular reasons. The first is accuracy, and the second is stigma. And actually, this leads us right into this week's Class is in Session segment, where we hit up this week's Teachable Moment. Welcome to the health class you wish you had in high school. Actually, this week's is the history class you wish you had in high school. Now, fun fact about me. 
I, in medical school, was part of the History of Medicine Society. It's actually where I met my husband. And this is probably not why you're listening to this podcast, but it's an adorable story. So I'm going to share it real quick. So I was a first year medical student. My husband was a second year medical student. And he was president of this club that obviously only cool kids are in, the History of Medicine Society. And, you know, the, the society put out a call for first year med student representatives. I responded. He looked at my photo in our Facebook and for my new friends here who were not alive, you know, in the dark days before actual Facebook, and actually Facebook was around, but it wasn't as popular. Anywho, it was an actual printed out book with, you know, our student pictures and a little bit about us. He looked in there and he thought, I like the way she looks. And also she seems really smart in her statement about why I wanted to be a representative for this club. You know, he was like, she's the total package. So he picked me among other students as well to be a rep for this club. And that was, you know, sort of, that's where it was. We ended up getting to know each other and then we started dating. And the next year I became the president of that society, but it was a free and fair election. I need everybody to know that. And the rest is history. And now we're married. And what you should take away from that is that I love talking about these sorts of stories. I love my husband very much. And I also love history when it comes to medicine, especially. So back to what we're talking about, which is really classes in session history school version. And here's why, because when we talk about STDs, it's actually really interesting to hear where these names came from. So the original name for STDs or all sexually transmitted diseases was venereal disease or what you might see on like old fashioned posters, VD. And that's what they used to call all STDs. So it all was one name. And where did venereal disease, that term come from, you might ask? Well, you're in the right place. It actually came from Venus, the goddess of love. So the idea was that when you love somebody or you at least hooked up with them, you could spread things like gonorrhea. And so because we love making things sound really fancy, we called it venereal disease or VD. Then people kind of wised up and realized that just because it shows up on your genitals doesn't mean it's all the same disease. And they started to get their own names as science sort of caught up. Let's talk about the name gonorrhea. Gonorrhea has been called the clap, like clapping. And there are different ideas of how the word clap came about. And this is not something I knew before I was researching this for this podcast. And now I know it and I can't unsee it. And now you won't either. So some people say it refers to how they thought you would treat it. Because back in the 1500s, when there were no antibiotics, and we didn't really know what was going on, some men who got gonorrhea would try to cure it by, I, hey guys, I just, a warning guys, it's, it, this might, you might hear this and you might get a pain between your legs because they would either clap their penis in between their hands very hard or like slap or clap their penis up against a board with the idea of like getting rid of whatever was in the penis that was causing this discharge and this discomfort. Um, by the way, that doesn't work. I'm sorry that that image is now in your head, but it's all in the name of learning. The second reason that people think maybe that's how gonorrhea got called the clap was the, the old English word clappin, not like clapping, but clappin, which meant throbbing or beating. And as you can imagine, gonorrhea, it's uncomfortable. It could cause a throbbing sensation, hence the name. And the last and what some people say is the most popular reason that gonorrhea used to be nicknamed the clap was because it came from the French word for brothel, clapier. Now I don't speak French, so I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but all of these I feel like are very believable reasons. And you still may hear people refer to gonorrhea as the clap, but I like to just use the real word, which is gonorrhea. Okay, and the very last one for this fun history class. And again, this will make you 
total hits at dinner parties. Like, just, just, you know, it's true, right? You just, you know, it's true. So syphilis, the name of this disease came from a poem written by an Italian poet who was also a physician. His name was Girolamo Fracastoro. And I'm sure I totally also mispronounced that. He wrote this in 1530. And the title of the poem was Syphilis Sivi Morbus Gallicus. And what the poem was about was this shepherd. His name was Syphilis. And apparently this shepherd got a little mouthy and decided to have a little disagreement with Apollo, one of the Greek gods of the sun. And he blamed Apollo for the reason that there was a drought. There was no rain and it ruined his flocks and everything was terrible. And the Greek gods, if you've ever done any sort of deep dive into Greek literature, they are very vengeful. And so what Apollo did was he, you guessed it, inflicted him with this disease, which represented syphilis. And and this poet gave it the title syphilis. And so that's what it was called. So the lesson here, my friends, is that history is really fun and don't piss off the Greek gods. Class dismissed. (laughs) So you can see how even in these historical references, there's a lot of stigma with STIs and STDs. Even, you know, you get mad at a Greek god and boom, you've got syphilis. But despite these being very common, all sorts of sexually transmitted infections, we still have so much shame. So let's go back to why we changed the name. So the first one was shame, which as you can imagine, STI sounds a little nicer than venereal disease, which maybe sounds better than the clap. I don't know. The second reason that we've changed these names is really accuracy because infection and disease aren't the same thing. So you might think that they're interchangeable, but they're not. So infections are very different from disease. A disease is when an infection causes damage to your body, like you have an actual illness. And not all infections, which can be caused from bacteria or a virus or a parasite, those are, that's something that gets into your body. Not all those infections are going to go on and actually cause like a real disease. So let's use HPV as an example, which is the human papillomavirus. That's a virus that's spread and it's super common. Up to 80% of people who have sex at some point in time will have HPV. So it's one of those things that when people have it or I've had patients who've been diagnosed with it and they think that the world is ending and I tell them, no, no, my friend, it is the common cold of the vagina. You will more than likely get it. And quite frankly, that's why vaccinations are so important, but that is a conversation for another day. But these things are super common and you can have HPV for a really long time, but you have no symptoms and it may not actually go on to cause a disease. So we know that HPV can cause something like cervical cancer, but for a lot of people, it regresses, goes away completely, doesn't cause any issues. So for this reason, the term sexually transmitted infection or STI is more accurate than sexually transmitted disease. When I am talking on my social media or even in conversation, I tend to go back and forth. I, I will say I more frequently use STI just because I like to be accurate. And I think that when we use these words, they become more common. And so we'll eventually, that one will take over and will dominate. But I tend to go back and forth only because you have to meet people where they're at. Some people have only heard the term STD, and so they might not understand my post otherwise. Or if they're Googling or searching something, you want to put it in terms that they understand. So you may even still see in medical literature on websites or even like the CDC websites or even when talking to your physician that you might see both. Okay, 
let's keep the education train going about STIs or STDs. If you want to say that, I'm not here to judge. We're going to talk about this next question, which I love. So let's have a listen. Hey, Dr. Jen, it's Joya. I'm so excited about your podcast. I wanted to ask you if there is some way that you could break down what sexual activities have higher and lower risk of transmission for STIs. So as in, I get tested regularly, I have multiple partners, but like, you know, if we're kissing one another, that's obviously a lower risk activity of STI transmission than penetrative anal sex, right? But how about all the stuff in between? I'm just wondering if there's like a way that we can understand the differences in risk for the different types of activities so that we can keep ourselves safe and prevent spreading STIs when we're having fun with our friends. That's my question. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, Julia, thank you so much for asking this question because I love that you just put it out there. You had zero shame asking about how do we have sex and have it have more safe sex? And if we're gonna have sex with different people, like instead of pretending that's not gonna happen, we just acknowledge it and say, how do we make good choices to be as safe as we can? So I'm so thankful that you are asking this without any shame and that you're trusting me with this. So thank you so much. And you are absolutely right that different things have different levels of risk. And that is not something everybody knows. So I'm going to say that again. Different types of sexual activity have different types of risk associated with them. And starting from the very beginning, it's a numbers game. It's just what it is. It's a numbers game. So the more people you have sexual contact with, the more likely that you might be exposed to something like HPV or genital herpes or gonorrhea or chlamydia or all of these things. And I'm not here to say that that's on you and that's your fault and quote unquote, you asked for it because we, no, 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 we don't do that here. I'm just pointing out the very obvious thing that the more people you have sex with, the more chances you're taking still doesn't mean you can't be safe. and go your whole life without ever being exposed to to anything. If you not only are safe, but you employ good testing and, and you sometimes you, you just get lucky. But the important thing to know is that if you have an STI or you're diagnosed with something, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that you're having sex and you're human. So the highest risk of transmission is any kind of sex that's unprotected. So let's just start with that. So any sort of sex that you're having without any sort of protection. And I do want to point out that while we have lots of good methods for birth control out there, the only kind that works as a birth control and also protects against infections are condoms, whether these are what we call the traditional male condoms, or what I like to say is external condoms, because not everybody who has a penis identifies as a male, or internal condoms, which get placed in the vagina, which again, used to also be called female condoms, and I just call them internal for the same reason. So really, anything that you're doing that's unprotected, that's your highest risk thing. The other one that falls into the highest risk category for what might be the highest chance that you could get a sexually transmitted infection is where there's a high risk of skin breakage. And this is really what we're talking about is anal sex. And that's because the skin in the rectum is more fragile. It's more prone to breakage and there's no natural lubrication there. And so anytime you have skin breakdown, there's a chance that something can be transmitted a bit higher. So yes, that does count as a high risk sexual activity. However, it doesn't mean that you can't ever have anal sex or you can't do it in a safe way. You absolutely can. And the things that I'm going to highlight are important with all kinds of sex, but really, especially with anal sex. So the first and foremost I've already hit on this is condoms. Condoms, condoms, condoms. A new one every single time. Putting on more than one condom is not better. 
I know it seems like it should be, but they can cause friction and can cause tearing. So using the condom as it's intended, a new one every single time, making sure it's not expired, putting it on correctly, having it on well before there's any sort of skin to skin contact is really the safest thing that you can do and then disposing of it correctly. The second thing that you can do to be safer are dental dams. And if you haven't heard about dental dams, think of it like an unfolded condom that you put over an area where your mouth is coming in touch with someone's genitals and it acts as a physical barrier. So this can be used for oral sex for either females or males. And they make specific dental dams that you can purchase. But in a pinch, if you don't have one, you can use a condom, cut off the end and unroll it. And the same instructions apply with using a new one every time, using them as instructed, making sure that they are not expired, that sort of thing. So when it comes specifically to anal sex, and I think it's really important that we highlight this again, yes, condoms, like I've said many times now, but really also lube. Lube is really important for the reasons that I said that the rectum does not make lube on its own, unlike the vagina. And so you have to use lube there if you want to decrease that friction and decrease the chance that you could get little cuts or skin breakdown. There's lots of different types of lube out there, and it's important to use the kind of lube that doesn't cause irritation to you, that you feel lasts long enough, and you're not constantly having to use a ton more, although, like I said, just have it by the bedside. And if you're using toys, making sure that it's compatible with toys. Another thing that's super important when it comes to anal sex is stopping when it hurts. Now, lots of people enjoy what we call rough sex, where it's a little more, you know, intense, and that's totally fine as long as you're not feeling that you're getting hurt or you're doing it consensually. But when it comes to anal sex, you got to be careful. And if something hurts, you need to stop because it's just a different situation and you're much more prone to injury. And then when that happens, you're much more likely to spread infections. The other thing that's a little bit different about anal sex too, is that when we're talking about skin breakdown and bacteria or viruses getting into your bloodstream, it's not just gonorrhea or chlamydia, but things that live in your intestines like E. coli could also then get into your bloodstream and make you very sick. So it's just important to take these precautions. And if you want to know more about how to have anal sex more safely, and there's no shame in the anal sex game, I think it's really important to know this is not an uncommon sexual practice. It doesn't make you dirty or shameful. And it's something that a lot of people do and derive pleasure from. There's just some steps you need to take to do it more safely. I do have a YouTube video on this and you can go ahead and watch that. So I will put that link in the show notes. One more thing you can do to be safe, whether it's anal sex or receptive vaginal sex or anything else is while I know we're taught in kindergarten to share and sharing is caring, it does not apply to toys. So if you're using toys like vibrators or dildos, not sharing them, or if you do putting on a new condom and washing them in between and then sterilizing them in between usage and cleaning them as is laid out in the instructions of the toys. So I love sharing for some things, but not so much for this. And if you really want to be as safe as possible and minimize your risk of transmitting an infection, this is one time where you can say, no, thank you. I'm not sharing. Now, we just talked about some of the highest risk situations when it comes to getting STIs, but it's important to know that these infections can spread with even more low risk activities like kissing. One example that I use is the herpes simplex virus or HSV or what we tend to just call herpes. And so it's important to know that there's different strains of herpes out there. There's a lot of strains, but there's two particular strains that we think of when we think of genital herpes. There's HSV-1 and HSV-2. And it used to be that we used to only think of HSV-1 as the kind of herpes that you would get little cold sores around your mouth. And HSV-2 was just for the genitals when we're talking about genital herpes. Here's the thing. 
And again, if you're listening to my podcast, you probably know this. Sometimes people's mouths go on other people's genitals. And that means that what's on your mouth could spread down to your genitals. So if you have one or the other, they are both a possibility that could be genital herpes. And it's important to know that if you kiss somebody who's got an active cold sore or they you know, go down on you and they have a cold sore, that could be a way that they could spread it to your vulva or your vagina or your penis. And so it's really important to know that while that's technically considered a low risk activity, it's definitely a way that something could spread. Okay, we are not here to be like Debbie Downer and be like, wah, wah, you can't do anything or you'll get an STI. That is definitely more of the fear-based type of education that I see out there and it makes me lose my mind. And in fact, that leads us into this week's first literally, literally segment where I call out things that make me go, are you literally, literally kidding me? And this was the only one I was gonna do this week. And then I found a second one just a few hours ago and oh, we are adding it on. So here's a TikTok where someone is sharing their feelings about abstinence-only education. Let's have a listen. Why is everything but abstinence and celibacy taught as a way to make sure you don't get pregnant or you don't catch an STD? Like I see people say wear a condom or, you know, practice safe sex, pull out, you know, all these different things, but it's just like, no one's ever really promoting, just don't do it. That is a literally the easiest, okay, maybe not for some people. That is probably the simplest way to make sure you don't get pregnant or catch anything because you're not doing anything for that thing to happen. Unless you're gonna be like the Virgin Mary in God's eyes and he's gonna impregnate you, or you're gonna be like Jane the Virgin and you're gonna go to a doctor's appointment and somebody accidentally injects you with the baby, I don't see why that's just not taught. <laughs> like, I see the protests, I see people talking, and I'm just like, if you just don't lay down with someone you don't want to have kids with, this eliminates this entire conversation. Why is that not being taught? Hmm. Okay. That was fun. As someone who loves facts and data, let's begin there. Because I'm going to say when we see what kids are actually learning in school, I think it's pretty obvious that most of them, all they're getting is don't have sex. And that's all you need to know, like that kind of version of sex education, the kind that this TikToker said we never talk about when actually that tends to be what's happening all too often. So let's see what the actual data shows and if it's really working. So here are the statistics on sex education in this country. 39 states and the District of Columbia mandate sex ed and or HIV education. Yes, that means not all states mandate this. Only 18 of these states require that what the kids are being taught is medically accurate. Only 18 are like, you know what, if we're going to do this, let's make sure it's right. The rest are like, yeah, well, hopefully it's close enough. Only 20 states and DC require the discussion of information about contraception. And the other 30 are like, oh, just don't do it. Hope you don't get pregnant. That's really going to work. And 28 states actually do require that abstinence be stressed. And let me be clear, I am all for abstinence being something that is taught. And like I've said, in all of this, any sort of sexual activity is risky. The only way that you are going to 100% guarantee that you are not exposed to an STI or an STD is if you don't have sex. There's no OBGYN out there who's not saying that. 
So you might then say, well, then abstinence only education is the best thing, right? Like if we tell our students that and our young people that, and they know that everything else is terrible and dangerous, if we tell them to just not have sex, that's a good thing, right? Clitorally and literally, it is not. Here's a fun little discussion on the United States and its history with abstinence-only education, or what we sometimes call abstinence-only until marriage education, where that's exactly what they're stressing. We have spent $2 billion, that's with a B in this country, on this education. And you would think, wow, if we're spending that much money, it's something that works really well, right? Mm, It doesn't. (laughs) In fact, we know that it doesn't work so well based on data that really big organizations like the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American College of OBGYN, the American Public Health Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics all say that the government should not be funding these programs because they don't work and they don't prepare young people to actually make good choices and be safe when they grow up. We have a review from 2007 that showed no evidence that it worked, that Students who got abstinence-only education were no more likely to wait when it comes to having sex for the first time. They were no more likely to have fewer sexual partners, and they were no more likely if they were having sex to stop it. It did nothing. So in conclusion, yeah, we can all agree that abstinence, it's an awesome way to not get STIs and an awesome way to not get pregnant. But pretending that if we just say that, that's the answer, and when we act like discussing other things like condoms and safe ways to have sex and safer ways to have sex. That's super important. And to pretend that if we talk about that, then we're also completely forgetting about abstinence only is totally not true. We can talk about both of these things. But we know that when we do talk about safe sex, especially with young people, if you're a parent listening to this, if you talk to your teenager about sex and how to be safe, it doesn't make them more likely to go have sex. In fact, it makes them more likely to wait And when they do choose to have sex, that they will do it more safely, which as a parent myself is what I want for my own kids, literally and clitorally. Okay, so I was going to end it right there. And then the Instagram gods were like, Jen, we've got something for you that you absolutely must discuss on your podcast. So this was something that I just found. It was actually yesterday. Y'all, this is not a joke. So I was scrolling through Instagram as one does, scrolling through my stories, and I got served a promoted ad. And it was something that was called Stop the Donald. And the reason I stopped and looked at it was because the big letters STD on the screen. And as an OBGYN, I thought, oh, what's this? And as I was prepping for this episode, I thought, oh, that's so funny. And maybe a little weird that my phone knows me that well. I clicked on it and it's this account called Real Stop the Donald. And I want to make it clear that I am not talking about this to throw any hate to the people who made this account or like ask my followers to go there and harass them. I'm not at all, but I'm calling this out because it is a perfect example of shame-based marketing and the problem with these kinds of things and how it makes people who might have an STI or an STD feel ashamed and not maybe want to go get tested or not want to talk about it because of products and accounts just like this. So it's Real Stop the Donald and their profile picture as of today at this time of recording, it's this orange thing, which as we all know, represents Trump's face and it's got hair kind of blowing over it. And it's got the letters STD 2024. And they make a bunch of products that you can put at your yard sign, you know, in front in your yard, they've got buttons and hats and all sorts of things, shirts. And the consistent branding throughout all of this is STD 2024. Stop the Donald. Let's stop the disease once and for all. So let's talk about this. They have gone ahead and conflated STDs, which again, I call STIs, but they've conflated STDs 
with Donald Trump, who I love talking politics, but that's not even the point of this particular episode. They've conflated it with a person who's very controversial, who a lot of people don't like, and they've made it seem like, you know, they're, they're stressing the term disease here, which, like I said, isn't always super accurate. So yesterday, and as of this time recording it, I sent them a message because I felt, you know what, I'm an OBGYN and I've got a large reach on social media. And when I see this kind of stuff that when I go, oh, this is making me cringe, I can't imagine what it's going to make, let's say, an 18-year-old guy who just got a diagnosis of gonorrhea make him feel like. So I sent them this direct message. Hey, OBGYN here and just saw a sponsored ad of yours. I have to say I can't stomach Trump as much as anyone, but pulling in shame about STDs isn't where it's at. It adds to the stigma of STIs in such a bad way. I'd love for you to reconsider the harm you're doing here and know you can work to stop Trump without hurting people. I thought that was a very mature message. I was very proud of myself. And as of this recording, I have not heard back from them. It sent back an automatic reply saying that this is a you know a husband and wife project. They do off hours between their day jobs. Um, so if you need immediate attention, you can contact us here, blah, blah, blah. So they haven't gotten back to me yet. So they haven't not responded. They may just have not seen this yet. How likely do I think I'm going to change their mind and have them redo their entire marketing and their handle and all that stuff? Not very confident, but if I don't hear back, I do plan to advertise this and and my concerns in bigger ways, just because I think that this is how you fight back against shame and stigma is when you see these things, as you call them out. And some people just don't get it, right? Some people, especially they're not in medicine, especially if they've never had an STD or an STI, they may not no, like, wow, I thought it was being really funny. I really don't like Donald Trump. And so I wanted to do this thing, make these products. Um, I thought it was kind of funny and it would, you know, hopefully influence the election. But I think it's actually got a lot of harm. So we can have STD stop the Donald all day long, but we don't need to use that and conflate it with STDs and stopping the disease and making people feel bad. So literally, literally, I cannot stand this account. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope they right back and reconsider, but I'll update you if that does happen. Okay. We covered a lot. We talked about why STIs are called, what they are. We talked about some really crazy history of how things got their names. We talked about different risk levels of different kinds of sexual activity and how to stay safe. And yes, acknowledging that abstinence is definitely the best thing you can do in terms of a risk reduction model, but that that's not something everybody wants to do or can do. We dove into a couple TikToks that really showed exactly where a lot of the shame lives when it comes to STIs and STDs. I hope this was really helpful. I am so thankful for my callers who called in. And if you've got more concerns or questions specifically about STIs or STDs or anything else at all, do not hesitate to call the Viva La Vulva voicemail at 503-893-2016, or you can leave me a voice message in my Instagram DMs at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body and we're gonna answer them.